This podcast is distributed for informational purposes, and listeners should refer to important disclosures in the blog and the website for more information. Welcome to the WealthCast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello and welcome to the WealthCast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast, we bring you the information that you need to know in order to be a good steward of your wealth, reach your goals, and improve society. Today, my guest is Dave Butler, co-CEO at Dimensional Fund Advisors. I asked Dave to be on the show today to share his experiences career-wise and to offer his insights in terms of management, being a good team player, and making a mark in your company and in your industry. Dave, in his role as co-CEO at Dimensional Fund Advisors, oversees the management of approximately $650 billion with a team of 1,400 employees in 13 offices around the world. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the show. Dave, welcome to the WealthCast. Thank you, Chaz. It's great to be here. It's fun to be uh, chatting with an old friend. Well, thanks a lot. I feel the same. I, I, you know, in thinking about our conversation, I thought maybe it's just best to start at the beginning. Hmm. You know, you and I met, I don't remember what the year was, but it seems like a long time ago when you first came to Dimensional. So why don't you, why don't you share with the listeners how you sort of got to where you are today? Because I think that's important perspective for some of the other questions I'm going to ask you. Okay. Yeah. Happy to do that. Uh, you know, so anybody that sees me in person obviously realizes I'm a basketball player. So I'm, I'm about six foot nine and I played basketball at uh, Cal uh, out in Berkeley in California. During my career there, actually, I hurt my knee one year. So uh, long story short is I, I played five years and my fifth year, I was able to go start my MBA. So when I was one year through my MBA, I had finished up my basketball career. I got drafted by the Boston Celtics and uh, was getting ready to, to go be a, an NBA player. Uh, and they it had a strike the year I came out. So um, they decided that they weren't going to have a season. My understanding at that point in time, uh, I decided that I would look overseas to Europe. Uh, and I ended up uh, taking a job in Istanbul, Turkey, to play basketball in Turkey my first year. Did that for a year, came back the following year, ended up going to Tokyo, Japan, played a year in Tokyo. Uh, then I came back after that, had injured my calf to some degree, and my basketball career felt like it was kind of on the on the downslide. So I ended, ended up coming back to Berkeley, finished up my MBA that second year. Uh, and then when I was getting ready to, to look for a, a role or a job, uh, I still had the itch to go play basketball. Uh, I had interviewed with a couple of the big Wall Street firms, uh, but I decided I wanted to finish out my basketball career, make sure I didn't miss something. And so I ended up going to Birmingham, England to to play my last year of hoops. And as I tell the story, my I was probably a month into the season and my calf was really bothering me and I was just not enjoying the experience and felt like my again my career was going in the in the wrong direction. And one of the firms had called me and said, Oh, we've got a, a job for you on the on the desk. And so uh, you know, being a you know, in the nineteen mid nineteen nineties, being on Wall Street, you know, as one of the big investment banks, that's where you wanted to land. So I went to the coach and I just said, Hey coach, I've got this chance to fulfill a dream, which is to work on Wall Street. 
and I said, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, leaving the team. And I, that was a Saturday morning. I got on a flight on Sunday, flew to New York, went to my brother's apartment who happened to be playing with the Knicks at the time. And he's a seven footer. And so I went to his apartment, borrowed a suit and I uh, showed up at work the first uh, day, Monday morning. So that was the transition. And people always ask, you know, how was your transition from sports to to business, and it was about a 24-hour transition. So that, that's how I landed uh, in New York uh, to start my career in finance. That's really interesting. And and so you worked on the desk for an investment banking firm for a period of time. And tell me about that experience and and what you liked, what you didn't like, and sort of what caused you to change. Yeah, yeah. I was I was probably about three and a half years into the, the role, and I just I came to the conclusion that I I didn't really like specifically what I was doing. And I, I'd also had some experience, personal experiences on the uh, on the investment side that that sort of changed my perspective. And, and my perspective there was that uh, you know I had a broker, his name was Tom, and my broker would call me each day and say, "Hey, here's this great stock. You should buy this. This stock's going to go to this price. That stock's going to come down to that price." You know, the the whole concept was this this high transaction, you know, high commission uh, turnover type of environment. And you know, and Tom didn't know anything about me. Didn't know my net worth didn't know my future plans, didn't know my retirement uh, thoughts. And so I would get these these stock tips from Tom, you know, oftentimes would execute on them. And it was interesting. I, I got a tip from him at some point in time on a stock called Boston Chicken. And some people might remember the restaurant called Boston Chicken. But the idea was it was an $18 stock. It was going to go to 25 That's what the analyst said at the investment bank. And Tom liked it a lot. I personally would do my own work. I had a system I used called CanSlim, which was from Investor Business Daily. And the, C- the CanSlim was an acronym for various parts of the discovery in the stock. So M was for momentum, I was for institutional ownership, uh, L was for leverage, et cetera, et cetera. So I did all my work. I thought it was a great stock. Basically, I took all my net worth, put it into the stock. <laughs> I went off to a business trip in Utah. And back in those days, there was no cell phones and so forth. So I woke up the, the morning. I wasn't able to get a hold of Tom. And I went down to the, the newspaper shop, pulled out a newspaper, Wall Street Journal, opened it up, looked up Boston Chicken, thinking it was going to be 25, 26 bucks. And it said eight. And so instead of 18 going to 28, it was 18 going to eight. And I had this <laughs> kind of sinking feeling. I just basically lost all my money. But then I had a ray of hope. I, I looked, I noticed there was a, a crease in the paper. So I kind of pulled the crease apart, hoping there'd be a one in there. Uh, and there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was that was my you know my my big aha moment, if you will. And and I used to have a, a mentor, boss Dan Wheeler, that would talk about how the stock market would often give you high tuition bills because you had to learn some things by doing it yourself. And then that was my my big learning moment, learning experience. So about a month later, um, I was on the desk. I had just decided I was going to leave the financial services industry. I I thought that was kind of the norm, and there wasn't anything that was good or better from, from my perspective. So I was going to go back to California and go be a teacher and a basketball coach. And I was on the desk and, and opened up the Wall Street Journal one morning, 17th page, bottom right-hand corner. I saw an ad that said, Money Manager, Santa Monica, California, and sent a, a resume into this money manager. I didn't know who that was. It turned out to be dimensional. And I can give you some background I could, when I when I showed up there, but that was the that was the big moment, of kind of career shift, if you will. And that was 27 years ago. Yeah, that's time flies, doesn't it? Um, you know, you mentioned tuition. I had a similar experience with uh, with a client that's unfortunately no longer living, who used to say to me, 
and I learned a lot from this particular individual when I was young, in my 20s, just starting out. And he used to say, the key to being a, a successful investor is never paying the same tuition twice. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that, you know, that really, that really resonated with me is learning from mistakes. So whether it's a mistake that that's due to a systematic issue, which is kind of what, what you described with the industry, or if it's a mistake that has a specific route trying to time markets or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's really good advice. I think I, if, if memory serves, when you uh, first joined Dementia, I guess the first maybe the first day you interviewed, you had an interesting elevator ride or you had an interesting lunch companion. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that, yeah very much so. That, that was the beauty of, of that moment. I was, uh, to your point, I'd made a mistake. I had you know kind of hit the valley and I, I didn't feel good about what I was doing. And I was, I was open and, and luckily enough, and, and sometimes in life, you know, there's, there's preparation and there's, there's, uh, you know, luck and, and a lot of things that kind of get combined into, you know, opportunity. And I got this chance to go out to Santa Monica, California, and I took the elevator up to the 11th floor where this firm called Dimensional Fund Advisors was located. And when I got off the elevator, Dan Wheeler, who I mentioned was the, the first financial advisor to use Dimensional Funds was there to greet me. And then off to the left was David Booth, founder, you know, chairman of uh, Dimensional, and a board member named Merton Miller. And Merton Miller is a Nobel Prize winner, was a Nobel Prize winner in finance. And David said, well, hey, Dan, I've got something else I need to do, another meeting. Can you take Merton with you to lunch? And Dan said, of course I can, but I've, I've got this, this new recruit. So if, if Merton doesn't mind, Merton was terrific and one of the most modest, you know, smart people I've ever met in my life. And he he went out to lunch with me and he started to talk about all these really simple capital market tenets. He used to say, you know, diversification is your buddy, you know, costs matter, you know, markets work. And I started hearing this stuff and, and thinking to myself, you know, what he was saying was so interesting and so unique. I wanted to learn more. Uh, and then we finished up the lunch. We went back to Dan's office and, and Dan, you know, took the other side of the equation and said, you know, there's a, there's a new kind of profession that I'm involved in. It's called independent financial advisor. And it's an advisor who's actually working in the best interest of the client, who's acting as a fiduciary to the client, sitting on the same side of the table, if you will, as, as Dan used to say. And he said this combination of this independent advisor and this entity called Dimensional Fund Advisors that is able to efficiently access the capital markets, he said the combination of those two would deliver this great client experience. I remember when he said that, you know, that deliver the great client experience, and again, contrasting to what I had just gone through in New York a couple of months before, I thought to myself, hmm, you know, this is, this is really interesting. And I kind of scrapped the plans to go be a high school teacher and coach. And I went back to my house and got my corporate finance book and looked up, you know, Merton Miller and, and Fama and French and Scholes and, uh, you know, on and on and on. All these guys were in the, the corporate finance textbook from, from my MBA program. And these guys were all on the board. They're all part of this firm called Dimensional. And I just thought, wow, this is this is something special. So people always ask when you're young, what's your what's your advice to younger people? And I always tell them just, you know, find something that you think you can be very, very passionate about and motivated by and interested in. And you're going to be fine. Things are going to work out. Don't follow a certain compensation or a certain title or anything else, because that that becomes a job. It doesn't become a passion. And so I thought to myself, hey, if I can do this for 10 years, that seemed like a long time at that period of time. I thought, well, that'd be terrific. And again, here I am you know, 27 years later, 
same firm, but more importantly, the same passion and same same mission, just like you're on, I think, Chad. Well, thanks. I think it's the same firm, obviously the same firm name, but a lot of stuff has changed, right, in, in 27 years. Why don't you, why don't you just for, for contrast, talk about a little bit about the size of Dimensional when you joined it and sort of the entrepreneurial. What I, what I remember about those days having interactions with Dimensional was just the the entrepreneurial spirit that was there. Yeah, yeah. It was infectious, right? It was it was really contagious. Yeah. And then growing to a larger organization, I think one of the challenges I'm sure you faced is keeping that as much of that entrepreneurial spirit intact as you've grown. But yeah. let's talk about scale first. How how big is how big was Dimensional when you joined and how big is Dimensional today? Yeah, just to just to put in context, when I when I joined, we were about nine and a half billion. And today we're about six hundred and seventy five billion. Uh, and then the advisor business, the you know the, the business that Dan Wheeler, who I mentioned, started. You know, when I started, it was about a billion two total from financial advisors. And I think now we're at four hundred and eighty-five billion from advisors, something like that. So, I think the important point that you noted, which it's is really about being an entrepreneur. Uh, it wasn't just me. It was it was Dan Wheeler. It was a guy named Bo Cornell. It was mm-hmm. a guy named Sam Adams. A guy named Brad Steinman. All of these guys and gals who worked there at the time, we'd all come out of this environment, which I would call the the commission transaction oriented active environment. That was really what investment advice was all about at the time. And we and we all in different ways, we all had experiences similar to mine. And we got to this this place called Dimensional, and Dan again, laid out this new model, which really was wrapped around independent advice associated with low cost, efficient access to the capital markets. And, and each each of us in our own way, you know, had that aha moment. And to your point about kind of the infectious kind of uh, aspect of it, you know, we went out as Pied Pipers, we, you know, as we always said, there was really no business there. We, we just had an idea and we thought the idea was great. And we thought the idea was great for the client. And we thought, well, if the client has success, then then the advisor who's delivering that to the client is going to have success as well. And that'll be a business. And we, and we didn't have any grand master plans that we'd have half a trillion dollars from advisors you know, over X number of years. I never saw a business plan here at Dimensional. The only thing I've ever seen is this sort of this pursuit of truth. Can, can we do it in a way that's going to be the right answer for the end client? And if the answer is yes, and we think we can do it in a in a consistent and and cost effective way. Then then, then we're going to do it. That, that's the beauty of a, of great businesses. It's, ne- it's never about some strategic plan that has metrics around certain revenue goals or targets or this that. It's always about a an energy and a mission that that people grasp onto. And once that momentum and that infectious, as you commented, the infectious kind of sense of of hey, we're doing something good here, and we're making some change. And I always used to say if I can you know, look myself in the mirror and feel good about what I'm doing every morning, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to, be, I'm going to have a, have a long and, and healthy run at doing whatever I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think so many people today, you know, just because they haven't experienced the, what I might call the old world of investing or the old yeah. world of financial services, they don't really realize how different today is compared to the past. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I you know, I look back and, and people say, well, have you, you feel like you've made an impact, not me personally, but do you feel like we collectively have made an impact? And I, and I say, absolutely, we've, we've made a massive impact because, you know, when I look back at my days at the investment bank and I, and I pulled out an old trade ticket a while back when I was cleaning out my garage and the commission uh, that I had on a $10,000 stock trade was $450. So basically four and a half percent. And that was that was one way. 
So you figure if you buy and sell, you're you're at nine percent. So so in those days, investment advice cost about nine to ten percent, and it was trans. It was about trying to you know elevate the number of trades that somebody would make so that they could capture you know the commission could be captured by the broker. That was what we called investment advice, which was not the right answer. So I look today, and you look at what the client has access to. They have access to funds from Dimensional, for instance, that has have a you know expense ratio in the, in the 20 basis point range, which is one fifth of one percent. They have advisors who are again delivering all kinds of wealth management services and investment allocation services that a very reasonable price for all of the services that are that are put out there. And so I, I think the the solution set for the clients has gone way up. I will say, as you know, it, it's not like the whole financial services world has has come to this great conclusion and and that any client my mom can go out and find this incredibly good independent advisor slash low cost provider dimensional capital market solution because there's a lot of there's still a lot of product and still a lot of commissions and a lot of sales orientation in the industry but you know at least there's a there's a kind of a beachfront that that allows somebody to go out and find that right solution for themselves which i think is is important and wasn't there you know 15, 20, 25 years ago, for sure. Yeah, the, the, the solution's not hidden any longer, and it's and it's been clearly executed by lots of folks in the industry. In the old days, it just didn't exist. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember from, from my own personal experience that when I first started in, in the industry, which was 1984, a portfolio that had roughly 20 to 30 dividend-paying stocks was considered a widows and orphans portfolio. In other words, it was suitable for even widows and orphans. And today that would be considered malpractice. Not only were all the stocks in the US, but it was all one type. The diversification was minimal, but that's the best we had to offer in those days. And the change between then and today is enormous. The amount of academic research, et cetera. That's the starkest contrast that I personally can can share. Well, and I would, I would also say markets work, and I think it's it's competing so strongly that that the markets has had to shift. Yeah, it's 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 been really interesting. I I think it's worth talking about for a couple of minutes. You know what caused that shift beyond the desire of folks like yourself to do a a better job for clients. There was a tremendous amount of academic research that provided the evidence that you needed to make to support the change, right? So it would be interesting, I think, to hear from you how Dimensional was able to leverage that academic exposure. And, and that's part of the secret sauce as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's really two buckets there. One, one is the capital market side, kind of this, this introduction of the concept of, of indexing, uh, you know, buying every stock in a market and doing it at a, at a very low cost versus, you know, going out and Picking the 20 best stocks or 30 best stocks that was kind of considered to be asset management at the time, but you know, as you know, all all of the folks that are involved at Dimensional, you know, David Booth and uh, you know at Wells Fargo, Mac McQuown, who's on on the Dimensional board, he he was the the proponent, if you will, at Wells Fargo, who you know organized the academic data and research that suggested that this naive stock portfolio, this index portfolio, outperforms an actively manager stock picking portfolio on a very regular basis. So there's all kinds of academic research that started coming out in the 60s and 70s. That translated into index funds uh, in the early 70s. As I said, Rex Singfield at American National Bank, David Booth and Mac McQuown at Wells Fargo. 
that was a huge step forward. And obviously, you know, Vanguard eventually got uh, in, in the game in 76, I think, after uh, as, as the first retail uh, index fund after the two institutional uh, index managers. And so then that sort of just moved the, moved the ball forward on the capital market side. Dimensional then, the, the folks that were at Wells Fargo and American National Bank who started the first index funds, then started Dimensional in 81, and they launched the first small cap index stock portfolio. That was the start of Dimensional. And then, and then as we move forward, there was things like value stocks that, that showed higher performance versus growth stocks. And Fama and French, who uh, also are board members here at Dimensional, they, they published a kind of a landmark paper on, on value stocks that suggested that, that premiums existed. That was in 92, and Dimensional came out with a bunch of value portfolios in 92. So, so this, this kind of progression, if you will, from the idea of indexing and that you could buy every stock and hold on to it and do it in a very cost-efficient way, then translated into some of these, you know, what people now call smart beta or uh, multi-factor type portfolios that Dimensional was really the pioneer uh, in that space in, you know, 40 years ago, 1981. And that business now has become massive and has overtaken really every other type of asset management type of an approach in the last 40 years. Uh, and then on the other side is the independent advice piece, which again, you you and Dan Wheeler, when I heard it from Dan Wheeler, you know, 30 years ago, that was, that was an exciting aspect to like, what is advice? You know, how do we redefine financial advice away from commissions and transactions and turnover to something that was really about, you know, putting the, the client's best interest uh, at heart, keeping their fees low, being very diversified globally, and then eventually kind of translate that into like, what does that mean to their retirement? What does that mean to their charitable pursuits? What does that mean to their estate plans and, and, and so forth? So there's, there's a, an extension of all this that's made, again, the outcome for the client has been incredibly well served by both, call it the revolution in, in the capital market space, and then this, this kind of revolution, evolution in the financial advice space. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the whole world hasn't progressed at the same rate. So, you know, the U.S., I think the U.S. was the leader in this, right? And as you well know, I've had the opportunity to speak to, to, to many German advisors over a decade or so. And what was really fun for me in doing that was getting a taste of that same opportunity that you that you felt, that we felt together mm. back yeah. in the 90s, but doing it in a marketplace that may be 20 years behind the U.S. It's always been amazing to me that that it's taken so long for these other systems to catch up. And it's it's usually due to regulatory or societal bias or whatever the case may be, but but it's an unstoppable force. Capital markets work. It's it's eventually going to force everybody to do you know take a, a particular course that's in the best interest of the clients. Yeah, that's so so true, and and, and I think you you nailed it. It's, it's an unstoppable force, and you know, like you, I've been around the globe in so many different countries talking to advisors, and and it's all the same. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, clients want to be okay. You know, that's the that's the bottom line. Like whatever okay is in their mind, they want to get to that. And if an advisor slash coach slash you know you know, mentor in the in the investment space can help them get there, that's going to be an outcome that's going to be a positive one. And so, you know, it takes time to your point in each location. There's sometimes there's regulation and there's sometimes there's just societal, you know, viewpoints around markets and how they work, you know, and how, how often people should be trading and so forth. But, you know, 
like you said, sometimes you know ideas take some time to to get some traction, but once the momentum around that idea becomes significant, then it's it's tough to to put that genie back in the bottle. So the beautiful thing about all this is I'm I'm confident this is the right idea for my mom mm-hmm. <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for any client. And you know, as long as we just keep, you know, pushing on it and pushing the ball either either up the hill or or eventually down the hill, I mean, people are going to get a better outcome, which is what we all wanted and what, why we all got into the business in the first place. Yeah, it's it's interesting when I th- when you think about it, the investing process in the U.S. was basically, and this is an overstatement, I realize, but principally the same for 200 years, and then it changed, you know, those people would not recognize yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The first 200 years, it was buy stocks and create a 20 stock portfolio. Maybe. I don't know if you remember this. This might have been before your time. But years ago, there was a concept called diversification. And the idea being that why would anyone diversify their portfolio instead of just concentrating in their absolutely best idea? And obviously, the academic evidence has come out and been very clear that concentrating your investments is potentially pretty dangerous and doesn't have a higher expected return associated with doing it. But it's just indicative of how things have, how much things have changed over the last, in in my career, let's say 35 years. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And, and I think, you know, the reality is, is look, we're all humans. So we all have a behavioral bias and we all, you know, we want to buy a lottery ticket because there's a chance that we're going to, we're going to win the lottery. So we do a lot of things that are, are you know, quote unquote irrational. So sometimes what I found, even if you put rational data in front of somebody, there's still an emotion that people have to get around to be able to get to that rational answer. And I think that takes some time and it takes some repetitions oftentimes. And sometimes it takes a high tuition bill, uh, as I described earlier, for somebody to kind of like step back and, and wake up to that idea. So, you know, look, we all have opinions. You know, I, I have an opinion about what inflation is going to do next year. or I have an opinion about you know, what the economy is going to do, what the stock market is going to do. But as, as Dan Wheelies always says, you know, God forbid I ever invest your money based on my opinion. So you're better off with your investment portfolio, looking at very rational views of the market and deploying your assets in the capital markets in a way that's going to deliver those rational expectations. And, if, and look, if you if you want to speculate and you want to have that fun and that excitement from an individual stock, you one, you could go to Las Vegas and, and gamble a little bit. That's fun. Don't take your entire portfolio and put it in play in Vegas. But the other option is, you know, I remember Merton Miller said this to me too. They said, well, you sound like a efficient market aficionado. Do, do you ever pick stocks? And he said, yes, yeah, of course. He goes, I, I have, I buy two or three stocks every year because it's fun and it's exciting. And so in his view, it was like, that was a speculative part of his portfolio. He said, it's never more than two or 3% of my net worth, but I do it because it's fun. So I think sometimes we, you know, when we're trying to coach clients and coach people to get to an answer that we think is the right rational answer, I think we have to also be aware that, you know, people have uh, an interest in rolling the dice and, and that's why Vegas thrives and it's why people bet on sports and, and everything else. So, you know, it could be that somebody's completely rational is able to take their entire portfolio and put it in a low cost diversified solutions, but it might be that somebody goes, yeah, 90% of my, my net worth is going to go that direction, but I still want to buy Boston chicken with 10% because I just, I need to have that, that fun and that energy and emotion. So, but as long as they go into it thinking and knowing that they, it might go from 18 to eight and they're willing to take that, that risk, then, then that's okay. But the problem with the old model, the old version was 
again, we're going to look into the crystal ball. I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen in the future. And the reality of that future was completely unpredictable. And, the, and that broker had no right telling me or any other client that there's this outcome that, that he fully expected because he, he couldn't and he didn't. So there's a, there's a difference in setting expectations and then having the ability to meet those expectations on a regular basis. And I think what you know, the model you've, you've used for those years is you, you set expectations properly around stock market returns and everything else. And guess what? You, you meet those expectations. And so clients are, they don't want to see negative returns, but they're not upset when, you know, there's an outcome that they understood that there could be an expectation that that outcome wasn't a positive one. Yep. That makes sense. Um, you know, in your sort of transitioning now to, from, from the investment specifics to more, more about thinking about running a business and, you know, your experience there, you've had the unique opportunity to see from sort of the catbird seat, lots of successful entrepreneurs operate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a huge benefit of being in the position that you're in working with all, all sorts of advisors around the country, around the world, seeing how they operate. There are any lessons that you, that you've, you know, sort of principles that you've taken out of that where you've seen 200 people be really successful. What are, what are the commonalities? Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's a lot of it is leadership and, you know, I'm, just super happy that I had a chance to, to be uh, an athlete because I, I look at a lot of the sports uh, oriented lessons I've learned and, and they, they're applied over a very short period. It might be a three month season or six month season, but all the lessons are all the same, you know, when you, when you get into businesses and corporations. And so, you know, I would say that a few things that I see from the, the really successful leaders that I've, I've watched over time, you know, one is they're very clear about, where they want to go. So their, their, their ability to articulate a, a goal or an objective in a very concise way is excellent. You know, I think number two is, you know, you, you always want to make someone else look good. And so I think the great leaders are not the ones that want to wave their hands and tell people how great they are or what they've done. They're always quick to defer the credit to somebody else, talk about the team, talk about, again, you know, the goal, and I think when you when you do that, you you know you have a, a lot better ability to build out a team that's going to basically kind of function in, in in one direction. And the last part of that I think is is I use this line from I think it was Phil Knight in in the shoe Nike story about it's called Shoe Dog, and he says none of my none of my heroes are micromanagers, and I, and I'm a big believer in that. Like the great ones, the great leaders are all macro managers. You know they they basically recognize that there's a lot of people with skills that are better than theirs in certain categories and they want to basically elevate those people allow those people to run with it have ownership of a decision and then you know basically kind of sit back and be a mentor and a coach to those folks rather than trying to be the the all-controlling all-knowing person that's quote-unquote the leader who really isn't so I, i think those are i think those are probably three categories you know don't be a a micromanager make somebody else look good to further credit and then just kind of simplicity of, of your vision and your goal and where you want to go with your leadership. Uh, that's really helpful. Thank you. One last question for you, Dave. Um, any recommendations from you uh, in terms of a book or, or a couple of books that, that you might recommend to younger folks starting out there for inspiration, for guidance that, that you think may be helpful? Yeah, my favorite book uh, that I've I've read a number of times, and I've I've had my kids reading it now. It's it's called The Little Book of Talent by an author named Daniel Coyle, and you know it's it's probably 45 pages, 
of just small snippets of, of thinking about how you should uh, work on a daily basis. A lot of things about habit and about athletes who have gotten great at something. You know, you know, watching watching somebody who's really really good, trying to take things in small chunks. You know, and, and basically applauding your success for actually you know repeating something in a in a small way and not trying to get to this this big kind of outcome that uh, that everybody wants. But it's a great book, and you know, it's you literally can read one segment of the 40, you know, each morning and, and try to make that part of your daily routine. So I love that book, The Little Book of Talent by Daniel Coyle. That's my, one of my favorites. Well, that's real. That's great. Uh, we'll put a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes on the website okay. so people can find that really easily. Dave, it's been a pleasure to have the conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do so. And we've known each other a long time now, and it's been great to see your success at Dimensional and sort of go on the parallel journey with you through the financial services industry. And again, I just appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Chad. Well, it's been it's been a pleasure. And, it's, and importantly, it's been a lot of fun and very satisfying to do. So yeah. um, I hope that we have a chance to have uh, a conversation in the future. We'll get an update from you on, on, on what's, what's transpired. Hopefully it won't take another 30 years before we <laughs> see those results, but it's, it's really been fun. So thanks, thanks again, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Chaz. It's been great, and uh, it's a great point. The fun, fun is always a, another key of having success in anything. So that's been it's been fun all along the way. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dave Butler today. I hope the ideas and opinions that Dave shared will help you make better decisions, either as the manager of a business or as a team member in a business. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Please visit our website for show notes and a complete transcript of this interview. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.